everyone. Welcome to episode 7 of Gossip, a podcast series where we discuss and try to better understand alternative perspectives on issues. The podcast series is part of Chris Network's ongoing efforts to create a safer space for discourse on gender inequality issues and human rights. My name is Angela Kogadas and I will be your host for today. Our topic today is on gender responsive budgeting. We all know a little bit about our national budget but what would make it gender responsive? To help us unpack this question are our guest speakers, Omna Srini Ong, founder and principal consultant of Engender Consultancy, and Sri Murniati Yusuf, or UNI, deputy research director of the research think tank Ideas. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us, uh, Angela. Delighted to be here. So let's first understand what exactly is the national budget. Most Malaysians only focus on the goodies, like the subsidies and the tax deductions when it comes to the annual national budget. Just like any other budget, we know that having these goodies mean that there's less of a budget allocation elsewhere. But it's really hard for an average Malaysian to appreciate this or even remember this when every year the national budget increases, irrespective of whether our economy is performing well or badly. So Uni, what is the national budget? So national budget is basically the government plan on how to spend the money and also how to get the money. So when we talk, I think sometimes people think budget is just the government plan to spend the money, but actually it's also a plan for the government to raise the money to fund those expenses. Thanks for clarifying that. But uh, in fact, no one asked the question, why our government never saved when our economy was doing well? What are the questions should the average Malaysian be asking rather than only see the superficial icing on the cake, the, 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 the goodies that I talked about? I think it is difficult for the government to make that decision because while a budget is an economic decision, it's also a political decision, right? It's very difficult to reduce budget even though you have a supply uh, politically of course economically or you know if you have if you have to think about the future you should do that but i think politically it's quite unsafe choices if you are a politician and you want to reduce reduce spending especially when it comes to election right if it's if it's election the election year is coming even though say for example you have surplus which is this day it's quite a luxury. I think it's it's quite difficult for the government to reduce spending or to save some of the money uh, for future uses because, because budget is also a political uh, statement. But the politics can also be very worrying, right? Because it's actually very disturbing that for 2022, the government plans to spend 332.1 billion an increase from 320.6 billion in 2021. So despite the lower than expected revenue and in absolute terms, you know, the actual money spent, it means a widening deficit in 2021. And it is expected to be almost 100 billion in 2022, uh, this deficit. So government revenue is expected to increase to only 234 billion in 2022. Shouldn't we be worrying about this widening deficit uh, for, for the average Malaysian? Of course, because it, it also means the government will borrow uh, the money to finance this deficit. And for that reason, I think we need to monitor this expenditure from which sources of revenue. 
from which sources of borrowing that the government um, get to you know to to close the deficit gap so i think those are that's where citizen role can play role to monitor the government budget um i think other than that of course we i think parliamentarian do the same thing as well but at the end of the day the decision comes it, it's with the government right whether they they will be more prudent in using this money or not so we can as the citizens of course to to give feedback inputs on on how the budget should be uh, formulated but on the other side i think another thing as well while we we ask we are worried about the deficit gap i think most of the people also ask for the government to help more right especially during during pandemic for example yeah some yeah. some of the expenditure are quite inevitable especially because we need to help vulnerable people for example uh, however we can also ensure that waste stage corruption minimize so that even if it's need, need to be increased it will be more effective the way it's being used is more effective so i think that's where citizens can play their roles to monitor and to ensure that the implementations are effective Normally, people don't talk about um, where the government borrows from, right, to sort of supplement this budget due to the shortfall in income. But for the average Malaysian, what what are the implications? Uh, where exactly does the government borrow this money from? The government raises uh, money through uh, issu issuing bonds, like treasury bills, sukuks, uh, so that well, you and I probably or, or some some Malaysians or even non Malaysian, some Malaysian will buy those sukuks. Uh, so, so that's the way the government usually fund the deficit. So they raise loan from domestic market. Okay, so largely from domestic market. Ye yes, largely from domestic market. But then the implication for us as citizens is then the government have to allocate certain percentage of money every year to service this debt, right? Because you have to to pay debt. So I think. Uh, then we 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 have that allocation annually in our budget as part of operating expenditures. Let me check the number of how much it is. In in 2020, for example, we allocated about 15.4% of the operating expenditure to service the debt. In 2022, the, the projected amount, like the, the projected percentage is 18.5%. So okay, it's, it's so increased again. Yes, it's a little bit higher. So also reflective of that widening budget, right? In terms yes, of which also means that, as you said earlier, we have to reduce spending in other things in order for us to service the step. So the reports say that the Malaysian budget uh, for 2022 only uh, allocates a hefty 21.9% jump in development expenditure. You already sort of referred to the operating uh, expenditure of the budget to and this 21.9 percent jump uh you know reflects uh, i mean the total amount is 75.6 billion while operating expenses uh will rise 6.3 percent to 233.5 billion right that's almost three times as much for the development expenditure so in absolute terms let's just ignore the percentages because i think the percentages give a very false impression because 21.9% jump for development expenditure but 6.3% jump for operating expenditure but in absolute terms operating expenditure is three times more 
quite ridiculous for operating expenses to rise that high when population growth rate in 2021 was only about 1.3%. So in fact, operating expenses every single year has enjoyed a higher growth rate than an Malaysian population growth rate. So the, for the benefit of listeners out there, what does government operating expenses cover in the budget? What is development expenditure? Should Malaysians worry that only 75.6 billion is being spent on development? So operating expenses is basically routine expenses, recurrent, uh, say, for example, salaries and pensions of civil servants, uh, honorarium and emoluments, uh, or even non-civil servants. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, this debt charges to service the, the debt, grants to state government, statutory bodies, subsidies, those are actually operating expenses. Yeah, so development expenditure, on the other hand, is uh, expenses for basically to implement the, the five-year Malaysia plan. So we have it every five years, right? And, and it will list all the infrastructure projects that the government plan to build. So that one is funded by development budget. So it's actually set for five years, say a total ceiling of 200 billion or 300 billion, and it will be divided into five years. Of course, they will, they will like test the midterm evaluation, whether they need to change the projection different, which, you know, project needs to be continued or, but, but in, in general, it basically capital expenditure to ensure uh, that the, the development um, target in the five-year Malaysia plan are being achieved. So in terms of number, I think um, there's no hard rule, I think, on how much was the percentage of development expenditure should be of, of the budget. But I think the most important thing that we need to remember is whether these development expenditures are being spent effectively. I think I'm like a breaking record. I mean, that so sounds like, <laughs> but, but it is what is most important thing. Some studies suggest that the impact of government expenditures is not definitive. So whether it's negative or positive on economic development. So some studies suggest actually government expenditure have neg negative implication on economic development. Other studies suggest in opposite, it has positive uh, impact on economic development. But when you say government expenditure, are you saying, uh, uh, did you, do you mean operating expenditure? Both, both. Both. So some studies, even for Malaysia, I think it's a quite interesting paper. Someone wrote it about five years ago that actually some development expenditure, some of it actually has a negative implications on government, uh, on, on uh, economic growth, which also means that either these projects are not carried out properly or effectively and hence the expected impact, expected positive impact are not being realized, right? So number alone, the amount alone, I think cannot represent or cannot give us a sort of a picture of impact. So but I there think- There are a lot of uh, arguments uh, that development expenditure is sort of like uh, the investment that the government does, right? In terms of, uh, it's almost like long-term investment in the people, you know, upskilling of labor, the, the kind of training programs, or, you know, in terms of infrastructure, et cetera. So, um, in, so in that again, way, I in think that way, that, that's like, you know, looking in, to the future, yeah. right? Yes. So, and as I, as I said, it doesn't mean that you should not, when I said that there's a negative, negative implications of, of development expenditure and economic growth, is I, I, I want to suggest that the, the detail and the devil is in the details, right? What kind of investment that the government makes 
out of this development expenditure. So that's why I think it's very important for us to scrutinize budget documents. Okay, like, you know, we have 78 billion, we know the number, but what for what project are these 78 billion are being allocated? Are they really for, for productive investment? Or is it for something that actually not, not going to contribute to economic growth in general? So that's where yeah, parliamentarian civil society and citizen come and, and scrutinize uh, what, what type of development uh, project that the government invests on. So let's go to Omna right now. I'll come back to you, Udi, with a few more questions. Uh, but for Omna, uh, in light of what Uni has shared, you and I know that gender budget analysis is a key part of gender budgeting. It is the starting point, uh, so to say, to promote gender equality and women's rights through budgetary policies and processes. Different dimensions addressed by gender budget analysis include expenditures and revenues, macroeconomic policies, and the effectiveness of service delivery and investment. So after your gender budget analysis for the 2022 national budget, what does the national budget look like to you? I think firstly, I think we need to ask ourselves why why focus on the budget before we even go to analysis. And I think we must recall that the budget is the most comprehensive statement of a government's social and economic plans and priorities. And I think Uni also established that in what you were saying. And that in tracking where the money comes from and where it goes, budgets determine how public funds are raised how they are used, and who benefits from them. Operative word being benefits. Yeah, so the national budget is therefore the main annual policy statement which reflects the government's social and economic priorities and the fulfillment of its political commitment, even its political commitment to gender equality. Yeah, in monetary terms, to specific programs and policies. So developing the national budget from a gender perspective, we know will ensure equitable impact of government policies on women and men, girls and boys, and the real contributions that all individuals uh, make to the economy. Now, in this way, we know that government can evolve and implement policies that ensure equitable distribution of benefits of economic growth for all. And this is what Uni was saying earlier, that how I think at the end of the day, how are we ensuring equitable distribution of benefits for all, especially women and men, minority groups, children, uh, persons with disabilities, among others? So with that in mind, Budget 2022 does attempt to make aggregate allocations for mixed populations in areas such as cash aid, work, that's uh, economic uh, opportunities and um, enabling conditions, uh, education, sectoral allocations, for example, tourism, fisheries, and so on. But it also provides allocations specifically for women, for PWD, elderly, youth, families, the indigenous, yeah, the orang asli. Now, while all this is welcomed, uh, what we would really like to see next is a higher level of gender responsiveness, uh, where the lived realities of the beneficiaries are considered. Now, Social cultural norms, uh, and I might touch on this later, they shape our perception, as you know, our attitudes, behaviors towards men and women, resulting in disproportionate effects, right? Experienced by different groups, resulting mm -hmm. in exclusion, inequalities, disadvantage. Now, 
Let me give you a gender scrutiny uh, of, of the budget 2022 by way of reflective questions to examine just a few measures uh, of budget 2022. And right. let's, let, let's look at childcare very quickly. You know, there was 30 million allocation for nurseries in government buildings, right? Uh, previously, there was 10 million, now it's 30 million allocation for government buildings, uh, in nurseries in government buildings. Income tax relief, uh, was also provided up to 3000 for childcare and kindergarten fees. Uh, also, there was also another allocation of $190 million for construction of 69 new uh, early childhood centres and Kamas kindergartens. So all that in the context of childcare. Now, what we realise is, especially for the tax relief, that who, the, who benefits from this? It, we taxpayers who benefit from this, but exactly. who need it? Who need it? You know, going back to what Uni was saying, where is your investment going? Who needs it? So essentially my reflective questions would be, what has been the uptake and learning from budget 2021? Because the same allocation for tax exemption was given in 2020, 2021. Now it's been given for 2022, same thing. What has been the uptake and learning? What monitoring and impact analysis has been done? Number two, is that we know that the families in the informal sector, including gig workers, there's this growing number of gig workers, right? And how are these families supported with childcare, such as those in the B40 who are not registered or eligible uh, for taxes? Um, let me give you another example of, um, of uh, education. Okay, the allocations for education, for example. I'm going to just one. hold on on that talk sure. uh, Go ahead. Uh, uh, on education because I just mm -hmm. want to, because um, that, that key question, who benefits, right? Mm -hmm. And you seem to be also suggesting that there's a formula that the government is following to develop this budget, which doesn't seem to work, right? Because, uh, you know, the government has actually said, in fact, our former prime minister, the inf infamous former prime minister has actually said, only one in 10 people are actually paying taxes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> among our citizens, right? Only one in 10. So like you said, if you have uh, tax deductions, it's the taxpayers who who benefit and uh, the B40 don't. So like uh, issues of, that, that's why I was saying like uh, development expenditure, you know, the upskilling of labor for, for the B40, uh, you know, how, how does that happen? Uh, for, for that matter, improvement, ensuring affordability and accessibility of quality healthcare. How does that happen so that we are more inclusive? We cover people who really need uh, support, uh, especially in healthcare, because we know how expensive it can get. Because there has been reflection by, especially under the Pakatan Harapan government, that we have more civil servants than needed, right? Vis-a-vis -vis the, the population. So, I mean, if you think about it, the government has actually privatized almost all of its responsibilities away. So when we talk about stimulus packages, when we talk about creating jobs, um, is it, you know, is the formula just to create jobs in the civil service and who does that benefit? Again, that's the question. And then uh, the senior minister for international trade and industry, uh, Muhammad Azmin Ali, said his ministry expects to attract 200 billion, which is a lot of money worth of investments, to create only 114,000 jobs. So isn't there something wrong with this equation? So I'm just saying like, you know, we, we get overwhelmed with all these figures, right? And all these uh, amounts like, wow, you know, the government is really doing something. It's really helping us, but it's it's not coming down to, to, to those who really need it. So I just wanted to jump in there to sort of uh, get you, you know, Omna to, to respond to that. And maybe Uni also could, could jump in on that. Yeah. So again, what, what Uni said earlier, the devil is in the details, right? And I think sometimes uh, 
when when the numbers that are shared during the budget speech right that, that the whole atmosphere that's created people hear the big numbers they hear millions and uh, it's very overwhelming it seems like it's a it's a very generous offer that's being put out there but then when let's even look at just the cash aid that goes out right we don't want to also have a well raise a welfare perpetuate a welfare nation we want to also see to take it to the next level we would say we want to see wherever there's cash handout given are there accompanying empower empowerment uh, uh, allocations or measures in place where you are looking at how these people can have job placement upskilling and so on from that same community that you're providing the cash aid you know so it, the cash aid welfare must be accompanied by empowerment and that in itself is a gender mainstream streaming theory that if you want to have equality or substantive equality or equality of outcomes uh, you need to have on one on one part you may have the mainstreaming but the other part you must have the empowerment uh, model as well so i think we need to rethink the and scrutinize uh, the budget uh, with government uh, to see where actually it's going and how it's impacting. And at the end of the day, it is what's the internal monitoring looking like and how are they measuring um, the um, transformative nature, uh, potential transformative nature of what even Uni was saying, even if your, your development funds are not that much, how are you even more judiciously spending it to have a transformative result? Uni, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I think numbers can be a little bit overwhelming. I think, uh, I think like like the, the number that you quoted just now, right? The government will not spend that much, right? What they are trying to do now is attract that much investment, maybe from private sectors. You know, the government will not is not going to spend that much money. They are trying using maybe some allocation from the budget to create program that will attract this amount of billion of investment, right? Uh, of course, the number of workers, for example, or, or jobs created can vary depending on the industry, right? If it's a uh, non-labor intensive like technologies which actually only require a small number of people, that maybe the number of jobs created may not be a good indicator of success, right? So I think gender budgeting uh, process actually help us to think about that. Mm -hmm. Output is important, but what's most important is outcome. Yes, it's uh, like to what extent that, for example, it has contributed to, uh, I don't know, like increasing uh, income or uh, reducing the income gap between female workers and male workers or say, for example, how many have been like, has it increased labor productivity? So things like that. The So we will, I think we can no longer use the number of output as, as indicator of success and that's what happened to for example this is ideas works on on we are monitoring laksana the the numbers that the government usually give to in in reporting is actually or the number of people that we have given stimulus packages right or this this many people but yeah it's that number of course is important but i think as omna said right what are what's, what what are the outcome of this so of course that type of evaluation will will take some times and i think of course the government is now moving towards that the outcome based budgeting but well, it will take some times to to make this system works but i think keep in mind and for us as well 
to start focusing on outcome while of course you know counting output is still also important yeah but this um I mean, I, I'm glad that both of you are stressing outcome. I read this book by T. Chi Chang. I think it was written in 2009, if I'm not mistaken. So well before uh, Pakistan Harapan government took over. And uh, basically, he also mentioned that uh, if, because of now you talked about cash aid, right? And we know that, uh, especially during the pandemic, a lot of people you know, struggle with cash flow, right? Because they don't have enough savings. As it is, uh, their income level is very low, right? They're in gig work in casual labor uh, or forced to be in casual labor because of the you know flexibility especially for women because they're caregivers so so all that becomes more attractive but you know they suffer because it's it's a lower income and uh, he basically said that even if government gives a higher cash aid to the b40 like really to the b40 and not to <laughs> anyone else it, it would still be something because that would support their cash flow and, and needs right because they don't have savings no epf nothing i don't know whether we need to like because this definitely affects women um, omna and you you were going to yeah. talk about education as a as an example but you know income definitely other than the gender wage gap Definitely in terms of just level of income, right? And where women are located in terms of the employment sector, the, uh, especially in the informal sector, that, that's a huge problem, actually. Um, yeah. Women workers, you know, in manufacturing sector, they face a lot of problems as well. So, so what are your reflections on that? Yeah, so I think let's look at the necessity of a cash aid, right? So I think we're not saying that you shouldn't have it. I think it's important because even at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, uh, Dossum's uh, surveys reflected that people had just one month of savings. They, those who were employed, who had a steady employment, they had about three months. So, so it says something that's a different topic altogether, how people are actually putting aside money. It's a different topic. But it reflected at that point of time, they had about three months if you had a steady job. Those who were self-employed had one month, right? And of course, you know that the, the, the very... Uh, well-known uh, report, Families on the Edge report by UNICEF, UNFPA, and when they went down to the, the B40 community, um, they said that, you know, we don't have, and who are the ones who didn't have money, right? Were the female-headed households, the disabled-headed households, there were some also male-headed households, but they also said, you know, we appreciate what government is giving, but it's not enough. Because more often than not, our work on the ground also shows in some of these households, they have many children. So how can that be sufficient? I know be, uh, Budget 2022 caters for per child, but even then a one-off doesn't, doesn't help in, the, in a longer term uh, of a few months even. So we are saying cash aid is important for that time. Uh, but at the same time, it needs to be coupled, I'm saying, with an empowerment program that can really open doors for them to have the, the necessary skills, do job creation, get them into a steady income stream rather than sitting and waiting. It also perpetuates a certain behavioral pattern within the population as well. So mm -hmm. it is, we will help, but how can we help you to help yourself? So I think it must be coupled with that to have a long term. Otherwise, we are very we are looking at very short term uh, short term impacts that 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 uh, you it'll come back to you again, and you'll have to dish out again. So, how often can we do that? Do we have sufficient to 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 keep doing that? So that was the point I was making about uh, it must be coupled with empowerment, and maybe that's what we need to do differently. 
in the budget 2022, it uh, it actually states that for employers who provide jobs for targeted groups like the disabled, orang asli, ex-convicts, and women returning to the workforce, the government will provide an incentive of 30% of the monthly salary for the first six months and 40% for the next six months for jobs with a monthly salary of 1,200 and above. So this is the government who's going to provide the job, the, the, the partial salaries, right? So can we say, by, by just this statement, can we say that the Malaysian budget for 2022 is gender responsive? I think to some extent it attempts to be. But again, we need to go back, go down to the details. And that's where I, I think I'd like to, you know, maybe a little later on, maybe focus on live realities, right? At the government level, they have the data, it's disaggregated by sex, but there's no data that tells you about the lived realities of the people on the ground. And I find the custodians of the, those data are the population themselves, and as well as civil society organizations who work with them, who do a lot of qualitative uh, data collection. So that kind of information is not there for government. So government may think that, okay, if we gave that, that amount of money, if we created openings for women, would that be okay? But then when you, when you look at it in, in, the, in the detailed and also the, the lived realities of the women, you look at access, you look at whether she has voice and agency, can she actually step out of a house? right, to go and get the job? Does she have mm -hmm. access to the job? Or does she have three, four dependents, including an elder person to take care of? So all these things represent the lived realities of uh, of any individual, any any woman. And if you are, it's compounded if you're a female-headed household, then you can't count on spouse to help you, right? So I think you have to look at the lived realities. And yes, we welcome such measures by government to open the doors, but what else can you do to make sure that the women have those entry points? How can you create what we call enabling environments for them to be able to enter that space uh, without discrimination, without anything holding them back? Do you have an example of that, like to really so, sort of get our listeners to really understand that? Because you were going to talk about the an example from education. Is there something that... Mm. So let me let me just go through education. Let's see whether we can pick anything out from there. Yeah? So again, when you talk about gender-responsive budgeting, it's not something just for women. It's for women, men, boys and girls, marginalized communities, right? So let's look at education. They said that they will extend the special individual income tax relief of 2,500, right? The purchase of mobile phones and, and computers and tablets. But again... Mm -hmm. This excludes people who are ineligible for taxation, right? So that's one. The other one is in the field of TVET. So here is another story of access, right? So for TVET, government has actually put invested quite a bit in TVET, knowing that it contributes to the future of work. So here they say strengthen the education field and TVET, and they've put an allocation of $6.6 billion. Right, including construction of new Gatmara centers in situ, Marang, Trungganu, another 11 million. But then our gender lens on that asks, what does strengthening TVET entail? It's such a generic word. What does mm. it mean, right? Mm. Um, would it include a situational or gender analysis of the status quo? Right? How many women, how many men are there? How many girls are there? Uh, are they just from urban? Are they from rural? Are they from a particular household? How have they, how have they actually come there? Do they have residential 
space there as well. Uh, would it include gender sensitive training for educators? Um, we are saying that this is a positive measure. Maybe it can enable more rural students to enter the TVET programs, but how are you facilitating or enabling that access for them? Um, now, this presents an opportunity, we feel the 6.6 .6 billion and also the 11 million for, for the, the Get Mara centers. It presents an opportunity in infrastructure design. So if you're going to construct something, here's an opportunity. Now we are saying, can you consider your building in a gender responsive way? How can you have reasonable accommodations within the building to enable participation of girls and also participation of PWD? Right, and also considering lifelong learning when you talk about the future of work, you're not limited to just youth. Um, and also another another example, if I may, if time permits, um, is sure. they have another measure which says education for all, right? To build eight new blocks for special needs students. Mm. And it's a 124 million, big amount. Everybody might celebrate it listening to that. But then what, what do we know of PWD? Again, this is the detail, right? So there are about 897,000 PWD in Malaysia, including 250,000 children with disabilities. But only 560,000 are registered with JKM. Mm. Now, according to WHO's estimate, and this is a global estimate, they always look at 11% of population. So it could work out to about 4.7 million in Malaysia, PWD. But then mm -hmm. 560 registered? Okay, where are the others, Right. These are invisible population. We need to be yeah. very concerned. Productive, potentially productive, invisible population. So my question, our question is, what database of children with disabilities was used when you decided how many, how many blocks or how many uh, blocks needed to be built in schools? And how are these areas selected? Are you, are you following what the SDG uh, prescribed methodology for development, which is reach the furthest first, or are we looking at more urban centers? That yeah, way, more convenient, yeah, right. And then also the other the other UNICEF survey suggests that children with disabilities are usually hidden, they are stigmatized, they are marginalized, and they reveal the, the survey revealed that one in three persons in Malaysia. This is a perception survey. One in three persons in Malaysia feel that children with disabilities should be kept hidden and that 43% feel that children with disabilities would be disruptive in mainstream class. So the question is, how much of this allocation will also be used to raise awareness of public and increase the number of special needs teachers? So it's just beyond the infrastructure. So when they put an allocation, can they look at it in a more holistic way? Again, like Uni, right, we were saying at the end of the day, what kind of an impact do you want? What does that building provide? Or can we use that allocation to expand on it to provide that transformative outcome? So I guess it's about rethinking, reconceptualizing how this money is spent within the long term, long term, sorry, long term. There's a lot more to celebrate about. But but in a lot of ways, uh, that means also scrutinizing implementation, right? Like how are they actually rolling things out? Uh, how are they actually getting this information out so that people know that they can apply or try to access? Um, and and it, that comes to the question of, you know, with the way information is being kept uh, sort of 
hidden from the public eye, isn't it more effective and relevant if we have our elected representatives, our members of parliament, give more attention to gender budgeting so that they can ask, for example, why local housing is so badly planned for the poor and how that poor planning negatively impacts on women and children, their safety, their well-being. Issues of poor and badly placed lighting, poor ventilation issues, narrow corridors and dark corners, play areas that are hidden away from parents' eyes, insufficient living space for a family of five to the point that children have to study or do their homework in corridors. What what questions do you think um, our elected representatives should be asking? Omna and Uni, you, you can also add. You're, you're definitely uh, right about this. And I think today more, and I think past two years, I think now more than ever, we see the the understanding even among parliamentarians about their role, right? And uh, so they do have a key role, not only in ensuring that every group in the population is properly represented in decision-making, but also that legislation and government actions need to take into account the needs, interests, and experiences of women and men on an equal basis, on equal basis. And so, as I mentioned earlier, I said women and men experience life in different ways. And as a result, they have different needs, interests, and make different contributions to society. And so, every law, policy, program, and budget that is examined by a parliament will affect women and men in different ways. And that's something they have to know. So, this means that every decision a parliamentarian makes is an opportunity to increase equality between men and women and to ensure that everyone's needs are met uh, in the most effective and efficient ways. And so just to and to also inform you that, inform the, the listeners as well, the civil society organizations, um, uh, including uh, uh, Chris Network uh, and Gender WAO, the Gender Budget Group, they have been sending gender-sensitive parliamentary questions to MPs for many years now, right? And uh, we also see that GRB has made a comeback in the wake of the pandemic where gender inequalities have brought to the fore more gender-responsive measures to be in place. Um, we also see a heightened interest among legislators to raise GRB issues during parliamentary um, debate. But what, what are some of these questions that they could ask, right? So I think they could ask how was gender considered during the formulation of the budget? Uh, what is the current situation of women and men? Very fundamental, but very important. Uh, was there gender disaggregated data available? Was there a gender impact assessment conducted? How was the data represented in the lived realities of the people? Um, who was consulted in the design of the program and its related budget? I know for budget 2021 or is it 2022, government said they had this nationwide uh, town hall sessions, but who did you speak to, right? Uh, how is this budget allocation likely to affect men and women in different ways? Um, and was there a beneficiary analysis conducted in the previous budget allocation for the same? And where was the learning applied to the current program? And how, how will it be uh, monitored? So these are, these are some of the questions that we are seeing uh, our legislators uh, really asking more and more. And civil society has also a huge role in facilitating uh, that aspect of gender sensitizing parliament. That's great. I mean, the list of questions are really great. But how can the average Malaysian learn more about the national budget and understanding the national budget, as well as knowing what kind of questions to ask? I mean, yes, we have civil society organizations now doing this, uh, but we don't know the, the local situations, right? The, the, the citizen, the Malaysian that's staying there would know better 
And so then they would have, you know, if they are sort of better informed or have the knowledge and skills, they would know what kind of questions to pose to the elected representative and then or ask them or get them to ask the questions. So just your, your closing remarks about how can we do better in terms of uh, monitoring this national budget and the implementation of what they of what the government promises us. Uni, let's start with you. I think for me, first, uh, while of course, as you said, some informations are not available to the public, but quite good informations are also available. So we have, of course, audit report, auditor general report, which always have good informations of how certain programs of government implemented. They even have like, you know, sections on whether this has achieved outcome or not. So they have analysis on that. Uh, so, so those are like one of the important, uh, I think, documents that Malaysians should should read it. Don't rely on on uh, reports from newspaper. Only go to the you know to the to the main uh, documents. It's not fun to read, but it's it's a lot <laughs> of interesting stories. I mean, especially if it's close to your to your neighborhood, right? Mm, it, mm. Yeah, go to the state uh, level report which probably have some programs near your house uh, because of, of course the government like federal government may have like the program may be like too big but there are state level audit report that we can read uh, the annual report of department you will be like amazed of how like they actually disclose some really important uh, information for example i i like to check uh, information from uh, ICU, which is the one who manage uh, allocation for parliamentarian. In those reports, you will be able to see like in, in this constituency, this parliamentarian has spent this much amount of money. So we, there are some information here and here and there that we can actually find in government documents. So I think first start doing that. And secondly, I, I will get back to Omna's point. You know, uh, take advantage of your parliamentarians. You don't mm -hmm. have to be professional to ask them questions. I mean, I'm worried about my kids tomorrow. Does the government have allocation for this? Have mm -hmm. these allocations reached my neighborhood? How many people? You, you don't have to read budget documents to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. or, or like a specific technical to write to write a parliamentary question. Just call your, your MP and they are there to do this job, not to give you the money to ask questions in parliament on your behalf not yeah. giving you the money. I think that's what, what have been wrong about the role of parliamentarian in this country. <laughs> uh, instead of asking them to ask the question in parliament, we ask them to give us money. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I think those are, and and this then will create like, like, um, like I think even parliamentarians need that, right? Because they too, they don't have adequate uh, resources to, to have to hire researchers, mm. you know? so. If we, a citizen, actually feed them with a lot of good questions, I believe there will be a lot of good questions. Uh, so we can do that, I think. Yeah. Omna? Yeah, so um, it, it's so it's so nice to hear what, what uh, Uni, Uni was saying, that everyone, everyone can, right? So I think it requires a mind shift, and I hope this year is it, a mind shift of government and a mind shift of the ordinary person on the street. Uh, I think, first of all, it's important for us to know that participating in the budget is our fundamental democratic right and obligation. 
And today, what is required, and let it not sound as a cliche, but it's true. What is required is a whole of society approach to development, where every person in the population is recognized. And we, are, we see ourselves as an active protagonist in the development of our community, our society, and the nation as a whole. So it's no longer like pointing to government, right? What, what have I got to do with it? Mm. So, but government also needs to take deliberate measures to recognize the voice, recognize the knowledge and the experience of the person, even the, 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 fisher, the person who's going out and fishing or the person who's a farmer. They come with knowledge and experience. And how can the government facilitate a process by creating inclusive and participatory spaces for the people? But how can the, uh, the public also participate in the budget, right? Which is what your question as well. So um, public can actually participate in a, in, a, in a very strong way is to share with policymakers uh, their lived realities, where in essence, what does it look like? It is their concerns, their issues, their challenges, their barriers and needs. And what we have also seen, as I mentioned earlier, is their ability to also propose solutions and interventions. Mm. And this has been the learning of, for example, the gender responsive and participatory budgeting that the Penang state government has done. And on top of that, I mean, recently I was also, uh, I had also done um, localizing gender responsive budgeting in parliamentary constituencies with five members of parliament because they needed to see their population through a gender lens. It's very interesting how they use the gender analysis tools and what, what the lift realities informed them and how they responded by making specific allocations in their constituency to actually uh, provide that kind of equal uh, opportunity and outcome for their constituency. So again, I think it goes back to uh, lived realities and, and, and looking at our whole community, not just the women, uh, but the whole community through a gender lens. I'm glad you shared that, Amna, because um, normally, you know, policymakers would say, where are the numbers, right? Mm. But when we talk about lived realities, it, you know, we go down to the very specifics uh, and it's very contextual. Uh, but to hear that uh, there are members of parliament actually caring about these lived there realities. Was the first cohort. Yeah, and drawing insights from that, I think that's really, really important. Thanks so much, Omna and Uni, for your insights. Uh, I think we had a really good discussion about gender responsive budgeting. Clearly, uh, the average Malaysian shouldn't feel intimidated, shouldn't just look at the goodies for sure, <laughs> but take time to educate themselves on the national budget, but also to just ask questions, right? Use your elected representative, use your MP. They're there for a reason, even if you don't vote for them <laughs> or you didn't yeah. vote for them. You know, they, they have a role to play and so use them. Don't be sort of uh, intimidated or feel shy that your, your question may sound stupid. I think uh, Omna, you know, and Uni has also sort of said that your lived reality is what is the most important, the most important factor that gives uh, added value to your question. So don't worry about that. So thank you so much again to, to our two speakers. So we just heard from Omna Srini Ong and Gender Consultancy and Sri Murniati Yusuf of Ideas. If you enjoyed listening to Gossip, do follow us and stay tuned for our next episode on Internet Access. 
But we're taking a closer look at the issues from a gender lens. How does gender figure in this issue? Isn't internet access an issue that is faced by everyone, irregardless of gender? You can find Chris Network on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Remember, gossip is where alternative perspectives make sense. 